Hello, and welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. This is Randy, and I will be continuing my discussion on vacations in the United States. This is Sydney, and I will be continuing my discussion on unusual tourist attractions in the U.S. Specifically, today, I will be talking about the mystery hole. (laughs) The mystery hole. (laughs) All right. Um, This is Beth, and I have been talking about some different summer drinks that have been nostalgic to us. Today, I'm going to be talking about Chick-fil-A's Frosted Lemonade and giving you some information about Chick-fil-A in general. Fun! And that's right, you did not hear Cole today. He will not be joining us. We will continue without him. As always, we start with our holiday happenings for the week, and... I have one, which I was talking to one of my family members about the podcast, and we were talking about how sometimes you don't have a whole hour to listen to a podcast, and sometimes it's longer than you want it to be for a, you know, a drive or whatever it may be. So what I do, and what I would suggest others consider doing, is you can speed up a podcast on most podcast applications to one and a quarter, one and a half, or even two times the speed of the normal discussion and that way it moves it along a little bit quicker the pace of people's words moves along a little faster i listen to most of my podcasts on an app for the iphone called downcast and i can make all those adjustments in fact it can go all the way up to three times the normal speed wow but you can also slow it down one half speed as well so i adjust mine most of the time to two times speed And for most people that don't have an accent that's not a U.S. speaking accent, I can understand it at two times. If somebody has a foreign accent of some sort, foreign to me, I slow it down to like one and a quarter or one and a half. And I will say, it sounds super fast to me. At two times, yeah. I do not do that at all, but you always can just stop the podcast and pick it up the next time. Like, if I'm in the car, I don't spend as much time in the car as Sydney and Randy, So I might have 10 or 15 minutes in the car, so I would just listen to a podcast, turn it off, and then just it'll pick up where you left off. Yeah, that's right. And Sydney, you have a holiday happening this week? I do. So the Oreo brand came out with the Marshmallow Moon Oreo cookie in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. They call it the Marshmallow Moon. They do. And it has a purple interior, and the interior of the Oreo cookie tastes like marshmallow. It does. It doesn't taste like the regular one. It tastes like, it actually tastes like marshmallow. It does. Yes. It does. It has a, it has that particular flavoring. Right. The Apollo 11 moon landing occurred on July 21st, 1969, so Oreo cookies are making a jump on celebrating that anniversary. And, yeah, very fun. Check it out. Yeah, the inside is purple, which I'm guessing because the moon is not purple. The moon's kind of a grayish color. That kind of gives you a grayish view, but also sometimes the moon looks purple depending on the atmospherics from right. from the ground. So it's, it's kind of a darker color. Yeah. So it, it's like, you know, you see the colors in the sky. Sometimes they look right. like a dark purple. Right. And the cookies are imprinted. Do they all have the same imprint or are there different so, imprints? 
So there are three designs, three fun designs. Oh, not just not fun designs. Yes, one is a hack moon, one is um, the man on the moon, the um, astronaut suit with a flag next to it, and the other is a spaceship. I will say that it has glow-in-the-dark stickers inside as well to make an extra fun, um, I guess, galactal celebration. <laughs> Very fun. That was a fun little thing because the inside yeah. little um, cookies look like they have a footprint on them too. Oh, that's so like funny. Like a moon footprint on them. Mm-hmm. Like a astronaut's boot footprint. Uh-huh. Very fun. Yeah. So continuing my topic on vacations in the history of the United States, the last time I talked, we talked up to basically the Great Depression prior to World War II. Now, I'm not going to talk about vacations through the Great Depression or World War II, basically because there wasn't a lot of change during that period of time. In the Great Depression, people didn't have a lot of money to vacation. And then in World War II, a lot of the focus was on other things, (laughs) not on vacationing. But there were a number of things that came out of those events that contributed to vacations in the 1950s, which is kind of where I'm headed, although a specific vacation destination. But just a reminder, the 1950s were filled with activities, even though it was post-World War II, and the GIs were coming back, reestablishing their families, looking for jobs. Women who had been working were, were going back to the homes. At that time, homemaking was kind of the... The main thing women were expected to do, whether they wanted to or not, a lot of the men were now coming back and and taking over a lot of those jobs. But during the 50s, we still had a number of things going on around the world. For instance, it was in 1950 that North Korea invaded South Korea, and that started the Korean conflict, which lasted for three years. Post-war baby boom, right, this is kind of where the baby boomers came from, increased the birth rates dramatically in North America, Europe. Australia, and Asia. This was that time frame that that began. There were 1.5 million TV sets in the United States in 1950. By 1951, just one year later, that had increased 10 times to 15 million. And by the end of the decade, 85 million sets were in the United States. In 1950, CBS broadcasted its first television program in color. So that also happened. The first credit card was introduced in 1950. Uh, The first commercial computer, the Univac computer, was introduced in 1951. 1952, Mother Teresa opened up the Home for Dying Destitutes in Calcutta, India. In 1953, Nikita Khrushchev was appointed first secretary of the Soviet Union after Joseph Stalin died. And that's, the 1950s was really the the buildup of the Cold War that lasted through the 80s. The Soviet Union detonated its first hydrogen bomb in 1953. Cigarette smoking is reported to cause lung cancer for the first time in 1953. RCA introduced the first color television sets in 1954, and NBC started broadcasting in color regularly. And in 1956, Elvis Presley released the first of more than 170 hit songs. His first song was that was a hit was Heartbreak Hotel. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik Satellite, which was the first man-made object to orbit the Earth. In 1958, a year later, NASA, the National and Aeronautics Space Administration, was founded, which relates to our holiday happening. That's right, speaking of (laughs) space. And then in 1959, Alaska and Hawaii became the 49th and 50th states. The American Airlines launched the Jet Age by introducing the Boeing 707 aircraft. 
It was a transcontinental aircraft. And the Soviet Union's unmanned Luna 2, that's the name of it, rocket, reaches the moon, which was the same year that the U.S. launched into space as they safely retrieved two monkeys. So those were the 50s. So during that time, like I mentioned, a number of things kind of led to the creation of what became kind of standard vacations in the United States. I talked previously about the road systems drastically improving, and that continued to improve during the World War II timeframe because we wanted to be able to transport goods from one location to another quickly to support the war efforts. There was a reduction in prices and improvements in automobiles, uh, such that by the end of that decade, most families had at least one automobile. So during the 50s, that really took off. Also from the war, there was a few other factors that connected to vacations. One, the United States economy improved greatly. So families had a lot more spending money. On top of that, the military men coming back from overseas were going back to get college educations that they may not have gotten on the GI Bill. So the United States was paying for that, which meant that they were getting their degrees, getting higher paid jobs, and having even more spending money as a result. And on top of that, that professional jobs that they were getting had integrated the concept of two plus weeks of vacation every year. And if you remember, we talked about that. It wasn't that long ago that there wasn't that idea of vacation time on top of holidays during that period of time. So that really came from that concept of R&R from the World War, rest and relaxation time for the men. And that just integrated right into their professional jobs as well. And men coming back from overseas had gotten used to traveling and doing so quickly and efficiently. And that idea of being able to go on vacation and go somewhere now was not so foreign to them because they were always going places, packing up and going places, packing up and going places during the war. So hundreds of thousands of men now had that experience that they brought home. So all this led to a broad and new concept of family vacations, family road trips across the country, family beach trips, trips basically away from your local area. Right? So we think about vacations used to be, or, or relaxation used to be what was what you could do generally right around you. Now, vacations became much more oriented about places you could go, which is away from your area. So we always joke about how a lot of times in your own backyard, your own area, you don't take the time to, to go to those places because you're thinking about places away that you can go. And it was during this time frame that that kind of concept came into being. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So and how often do you hear somebody say, oh, I've never been there? Even in Scotland, we experienced that. When we were near the, uh, the, I guess the close major town would be Stirling, we were talking to some of the locals about the different places we were going to visit by car. And a number of them said, oh, I've never been there. Or, you know, oh, wow, that's a lot of, lot of activity. And to us, it was three and a half hour drive here, two hour drive there, one hour drive there. Wasn't that big a deal to move around the countryside like we wanted to. So We kind of based ourselves there. And then That's drove right. to the different... Each day. Yeah, just drove to where we wanted to go. It was really fun. It was really fun. So this leads up to my specific topic for the 1950s vacation, which was the origins and the creation of Disneyland. Oh. So yes, all of this was really just to give me an excuse <laughs> to talk about Disney again. So uh, Walt had said, just to, throughout this, I'll have some quotes from Walt. He said in one interview... Disneyland really began when my two daughters were very young. Saturday was always Daddy's Day. I would take them to the merry-go-round and sit on a bench eating peanuts while they rode. 
and sitting there alone, I felt there should be something built, some kind of family park where parents and children could have fun together. So he um, definitely felt that that was a big influence on his time, kind of being with his kids. And sometimes he talked about he would watch people and kind of how they treated the area, the park that they were in. How far would they walk to throw something away versus throwing it on the ground? He would actually interview kids, ask the kids which rides they liked the best. And these aren't his kids. These are other people's kids. He would, <laughs> he would ask them, you know, which rides they liked the best and why. That's so funny. Uh, Spot interview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. So now, even though that quote points to his time when his kids were little, there is also evidence that he was thinking about a park, whether he, you know, whatever it was called at the time, even two decades earlier in the 1930s. So there's actually a story published in 1955, just a couple days before Disneyland's grand opening, that said in the Disney archives, there were some original sketches bearing the date of 1932. So that would have been a full year before his first daughter was even born, and just four years after the Mickey Mouse cartoon was released. So you think he had those moments with his kids, but he also was thinking about that. So where did he get that idea from? The other funny thing is that there's a bench on display in the Main Street Opera House in Disneyland with the inscription, this is the actual park bench from the Griffith Park merry-go-round in Los Angeles where Walt Disney first dreamed of Disneyland. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. So whether he had dreams about it before and then his time with his kids kind of solidified it or not, he actually had seeds of that dream well beforehand. So he grew up and was born in the heart of middle America in a little town called Marceline, Missouri. The Disney family had a farm. He only spent four years there, but his brief time on that farm helped define him. One of the things that it did was it encouraged his creativity. So the animals, a lot of the animals were his friends and companions. He knew each one by name, and he invented stories about their adventures. One little pudgy little piglet, whose name was Skinny, used to follow Walt around like a puppy dog. So he was well-connected to his little farm animals. Also, Marceline was a small town that had the typical, you know, early 1900 kind of um, Main Street to it, Mm. right? So a lot of small stores with small local businesses, right? Uh, Along the way, people all knew each other along the way. Uh, Just a cute, classic middle America town. Well, in 1909, the farm was failing and... Elias Disney was very sick. He ended up selling the farm and moved hundreds of miles away to Kansas City, uh, where he opened up a newspaper distribution center in Kansas City. He put Walt and his brother Roy to work delivering newspapers, basically without pay, just to support the, the family. And Walt worked at a corner candy store after that, where he formed an intense work ethic at an early age. So even though the Marceline years were over, which were some of the happiest years of Walt's life, he still had a lot of inspiration that played a part into Disneyland later on. And that was a place specifically that he visited called Electric Park. So Electric Park was a little area that featured band concerts, ballroom dancing, vaudeville shows, penny arcades, shooting galleries, a carousel, a huge indoor swimming pool. It had cafes and souvenir shops, and it had flat-bottom boats that would shoot the chutes into a lagoon. It had a wooden roller coaster and a carnival midway with thrill rides. So quite the little classic amusement area for the time. And it had a steam train that ran around the park and firework shows that lit up the night at summertime. 
Unlike most amusement parks at the time, this park was clean and well-maintained. And Walt often spoke about that park and its influence on his design of Disneyland, saying that Disneyland has that thing, the imagination and the feeling of happy excitement that I knew when I was a kid. So Electric Park was named for the 100,000 electric lights that transformed the park into a nighttime fairyland. Which is funny, a lot of these elements you see then incorporated into Disneyland as well. And Disney World. And Disney World, that's right. So Walt started to get serious about building an amusement park property after the war. He started to put together a number of internal company memos asking different animators and producers, people that he already had in the company, to begin to think about how they could play a part in building an amusement park. So one of the things that Disney was really good at is finding talent and figuring out how they could apply that talent in other areas. So these people were creating cartoons. Now he wanted them to help him create this vision for Disneyland, an actual place that people could visit. So uh, Walt went on to describe many features that he was looking for in Disneyland. He had a vision for a Mickey Mouse Park with carnival rides, a carousel, a merry-go-round, obviously, since that was kind of from his own childhood, a Wild West frontier town with cowboys, a stagecoach, and a saloon-style theater, a scale model steam-powered train to take guests from the park, and then a, uh, a radio and TV broadcast studio, and then shops to sell, obviously, souvenirs. Even back then, he was thinking about that. The people that worked for him said once he got this idea in his head in the late 40s, he said that's all he would talk about is the park, everything related back to the park. So in order to get the money, the financing for it, he went to several banks, and most of them turned him down. They mortgaged everything, uh, they being Walt Disney and his brother Roy, mortgaged everything they owned to raise $17 million to build Disneyland, but that was still short of what they needed. So ABC ended up stepping in and giving another uh, guarantee for a loan of $6 million. Another problem he ran into was he wanted to build a park near his studio in Burbank, but they said no. So he, he looked for a place to go, and he ended up going to Anaheim and buying orange groves. And on May 1st, 1954, construction began with the hope that he would open up in July of 1955 because that's when his money ran out. So how did he do? So he actually opened on July 17th, 1955. We are in the month of July. This will drop right before the 17th. So we're pretty close to the 64th anniversary of Disneyland's opening day. And the first day, Sunday, July 17th, it was actually kind of invited guest, and he had planned for a guest list of about 15,000, but it ended up being about 30,000. Oh, wow. And local police said that the uh, seven-mile freeway backup was the worst mess they'd ever seen. A number of the rides and attractions broke down under the pressure of too many guests, and Fantasyland actually was closed temporarily due to a gas leak. Main Street had been so recently freshly paved with asphalt it softened under the heat of the day, and many women who had high heels on left their shoes behind because they got stuck in the goo. And because of a plumber strike, the restrooms and the drinking fountains could not both be ready on opening day. So Walt opted for the toilets working, leaving the visitors hot and thirsty. Wow, that is a lot of stuff to happen yes. right at opening. Yes. Most of the reviewers declared the park overpriced and poorly managed based on that first day, expecting Disneyland to close almost as soon as it opened. After opening day, July 8th was the first general public day, and it was more reasonable crowds, about 10,000 people, 
price of admission back then was a dollar to get in, which is about $9 today. And that allowed people to have three free attractions across the four themed lands. And then they could buy individual tickets for the other 18 rides, ranging from 10 cents to 35 cents each. So they figured out over time, and this is something that Walt and Disney in general has become very good at, is the operations of parks. They figured out over time that they had to limit daily attendance to about 20,000 people to um, not overcrowd and so that the uh, rides wouldn't fail. Uh, And within seven weeks, seven weeks, the one millionth guest passed through the gates. Oh, wow. After just seven weeks. So it did not fail the way... Some people thought it would. So the uh, the idea that Walt had planned out in that park persists today, not only in Disneyland, but Disney World, as well as Disney locations around the world. And that was to basically have a main street, which was the very front of the park. And this is where Marceline plays a role. That main street kind of vision is what Walt grew up with in Missouri. And that's kind of his picture. To quote him, he said, For those of us who remember the carefree time it recreates, Main Street will bring back happy memories. For younger visitors, it is an adventure in turning back the calendar to the days of grandfather's youth. So Walt made Main Street USA the entrance to a weenie, as he called it. What you need is a weenie, which says to people, come this way. People won't go down a long corridor unless there is something promising at the end. You have to have something that beckons them to walk this way. And that's what the castle became, was the weenie. And every park now has a weenie. Uh, Epcot has the big Spaceship Earth. That's its weenie. Animal Kingdom has the large Tree of Life. That's its weenie. Yeah, I think right? we get it. Hollywood Studios <laughs> has the Chinese Theater. Which used to be the um, Sorcerer's Hat. Yeah, the Sorcerer's Hat right. used to be in front of that. So it's interesting, that weenie is what is on a lot of the advertisements for those parks. But now the one for Hollywood Studios kind of varies. Like, they don't really have a great one for Hollywood Studios. Sometimes no. it's the Hollywood Studios Tower of Terror because mm-hmm. it's big. Right. Sometimes it's the Chinese. kind of the outline of the Chinese theater. I wonder if it's going to change to like a Star Wars theme. I doubt it because that's so one part of the park. It is, but it's also very well known. I would right. say that's even more well known than the Tower of Terror. What is? So the, the Star Wars theme. The Star Wars part of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Walt also planned for an exotic tropical place in a far off region of the world he called Adventureland. Walt said, to create a land that would make this dream reality, we pictured ourselves far from civilization in the remote jungles of Asia and Africa. Frontierland was made to relive the pioneer days of the American frontier. As Walt said, all of us have a cause to be proud of our country's history, shaped by the pioneering spirit of our forefathers. Our adventures are designed to give you the feeling you have lived, even for a short while, during our country's pioneer days. And then Fantasyland, Fantasyland, which was created with the goal to make dreams come true. From the lyrics of When You Wish Upon a Star, Walt said, What youngster has not dreamed of flying with Peter Pan over moonlit London or tumbling into Alice's nonsensical wonderland? In Fantasyland, these classic stories of everyone's youth have become realities for youngsters of all ages to participate. So Fantasyland would feature for Disneyland, the entryway would be the weenie of the Sleeping Beauty Castle and then entrance into the Fantasyland Village. And then finally, Tomorrowland, which was created to look at the marvels of the future. Tomorrow can be a wonderful age, Walt said. Our scientists today are opening the doors of the space age to achievements that will benefit our children and generations to come. 
The Tomorrowland attractions have been designed to give you an opportunity to participate in adventures that are a living blueprint of our future. So that is kind of the outline of how Disneyland was thought about, was created, and then eventually was enjoyed by millions and millions of people. It was interesting because when you were talking about how much Walt and Roy were putting into it initially, the $17 million, and then did you say NBC put seven more ABC mil- was the first one to put, yeah, to put money in. Okay. Well, the $17 million that back in 1955 translates today to 162 million 520,000. Yeah. So from 17 million to 162 million. So back then that was the equivalent wow. of putting 162 million. And I was thinking it ended up being 24 million. Yep. Which translates to 229 right. million 440. Which is a lot of money. It's but a I will lot say of money. That the cost of Star Wars land, which is one part of Disneyland, is close to a billion dollars. Today, yeah. Yes. Well, it's so it's interesting though because there was nothing like this back then. No, there wasn't. So on this scale. To basically put up $162 million for a risk. I right. mean, he was such a visionary. He believed in his vision. Yep. And Roy did too. It's just incredible the amount of money that yep. it, it took initially. And then that first day, all those things went wrong, right? So yes. it could be, it could <laughs> have right. been a very sad night for them, but right. it ended up being this the beginning of this yes. empire, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the way to look at it. It's just incredible. Well, speaking of incredible, <laughs> <laughs> there is a mysterious attraction available to people in West Virginia. Is it an unusual attraction? It is. I'm going to read off of the mysteryhole.com because, yes, of course it has a website. All right, slow down. You said mystery hole? Like yes. H-O-L-E? Yes. Wow. <laughs> mystery hole. Okay. Yeah. So this is an incredible attraction in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. The mystery hole. Yes. Dot com. This mysterious, mind-baffling mystery hole was unclosed for public view around the middle of the year of 1973. And is probably the best-kept secret in West Virginia, or maybe the whole USA. Whole USA, like H-O-L-E or W-H-O-L-E? Oh, oh. that's, that's <laughs> the mystery. <laughs> no, I'm <just> <laughs> that's the mystery. Where did the W go? <laughs> um... No one really knows for sure. Here, the laws of gravity seem to have gone berserk, and your sense of balance is entirely upset. Well, I don't like to be upset. Yes. It it has feelings, Dad. (laughs) We must acknowledge it. (laughs) Again, speaking of NASA and gravity, right? (laughs) Yeah. What is the mystery hole? This believe-it-or-not astounding experience has intrigued many people, both young and old, over the years. Many come time and time again, just curious to know if they really did see what they thought they'd seen, or if their eyes were playing tricks on them. Yet, some have gone away so bewildered that they've headed in the wrong direction and become lost. <laughs> That's true in general in life, I think. Um, I don't know, Dad. Very often, keys get locked in the cars because the occupants are too anxious to see the mystery hole and experience the laws of gravity in action. Wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> wow. Wait, so they're attributing people locking their keys in the car... To the mystery hole. Uh, well, they're <laughs> so excited. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, they've read the website why. and they know to be very excited. The Atlas Obscuria. Yes, that, 
That is a name of a website. It looks like a, a blog or a news website. Oh, that's one of my favorite websites, just FYI. Yes. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's weird. Okay. Go the ahead. mystery, it, it describes the mystery hole as a quintessential roadside oddity. So uh, it, it looks like a little rundown, I don't want to say shack, but... Yes. <laughs> and it, it's brightly colored. It's really cute. And it has a little taxi cab that looks like it's running into the building. Interesting. Huh. Yes. So um, it was basically a roadside attraction, which opened in 1973 by Donald Wilson. He discovered an underground area where the laws of gravity acted more like suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so um, back then there were a lot of mystery houses for people to visit and see the oddities inside, right? There were a lot of these? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> like, um, there were, uh, it once apparently dotted the American roadway. So going back to 66 okay. and all of that. Yeah, Route 66. Yeah. These odd gravimetric behaviors manifested in rooms where people seem to stand at a distinct slant, balls and even water seem to roll uphill, and furniture balanced on impossibly precarious points. Hmm. It's easy for you to say. <laughs> So, you know that as a family, I went to one of these. Okay, so explain your experience. The mystery hole? I went to a... I don't know that it was this place, but like Sydney said, it sounds like there were a number of these places, so it could have been somewhere else, but it was... Because vacationing across America, you need these things. That's right. You need oddities. We don't have uh, phones back then. We didn't have uh, in-car TVs to distract the kids. For some reason, I, I recollect it being connected to a trip... To see where uh, Big John was, mm. where the the big cave in, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know if it was the same location or just on the same trip. Mm-hmm. But we went into a like a house where gravity defied itself. Where, for instance, things could roll uphill. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. It looked like it would get smaller as you walked in, but it got bigger. Mm-hmm. Like it had this all these kind of like weird little things. Now, there was no, like, actual anti-gravity where we, like, walked on the ceiling or anything like that. But yeah. it did have a lot of kind of those things that were gravity-defying. How old were you? Oh, this was just recent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I probably was 9 or 10. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, this says it was located, like, in a basement area. So it probably looked like the basement of a house. Oh, okay. The place we went to was more like a cabin. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, this is not. But apparently there were a lot of them. We'll have to ask some of my family members if they recall yeah. Yeah. a mystery house with gravity-defying happenings. Yeah. yeah. Apparently the owner made it a very zany-looking place. <laughs> a gift shop, kind of going back to Walt, right? Get the gift shop idea. Absolutely. Um, apparently had a... Kind of like what I was uh, showing you both earlier. A sawed-off Volkswagen Beetle that seemed to be crashing into the structure. And a big gorilla statue looming over the front door. <laughs> okay. That definitely was not the place I went to. Okay. No. okay. <laughs> yeah, you would have remembered the yeah, gorilla. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the Volkswagen and the gorilla. I would have remembered. Yeah, so apparently Wilson's attraction did very well during the first decade or so. Until the road trip culture began to decline eventually leading to the closure of the mystery hole in 1996. Oh, it lasted a long time, though. It did. 96? Yeah. Good job, mystery hole. Wilson passed not long after, and it seemed like the mystery hole would basically be left to, this says, the ravages of time. <laughs> Very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, a little dramatic. But the attraction was eventually taken over by Will and Sandra Morrison, who basically spruced up the place, 
and um, wanted to give America the same simple tricks and goofy scares in the mystery hole that beckoned to an earlier time, a bygone America, so to speak. So yeah, feel free to check it out. It does have its own website, which is pretty cool. They have guided tours. Do they sell like jimmies or something to get back into your car because you've locked your keys in the so car? Because you're so excited. Like right. they sell like $100 little things that help you get back into yeah. your car. Coat hangers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be hilarious, but I don't see that on there. No. <laughs> That's not They do part. have a job openings tab though. Oh. Yeah. Did you apply? No. Oh, okay. But I I don't see a gift shop tab, so you might have to call them. But yeah, um, it's located in Anstead, West Virginia. Take a look, you know, give it a try, see what you think, and let us know. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And it's still open today. It is. Awesome. Under new management. Under new management, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, May hours, 10.30 to 5.30, July hours, 10.30 to 5.30. On most days? On most days. Closed Tuesdays <laughs> and Wednesdays. That's so be hilarious. sure to check the hours. <laughs> and days. Under yeah, new management. Under new management always reminds me of the Tiki Room when Iago, when they inserted the yeah. the Iago bird with uh, Zazu. Into the mm-hmm. script. Into yeah. the Tiki script and everybody hated it. <laughs> And eventually they had to take it out because um, it caught on fire. People like questioned if it was arson or if it was actually <laughs> accidental. Purposeful. <laughs> Getting yes. Yago out of here once and for all. Because yes. <laughs> let's so let's be let's be honest. It wasn't Zazu that caused the yes. The so hopefully, irritation. hopefully under new management is better for them yes. than it was for the Tiki Room. Definitely. <laughs> well, I'm sure they got thirsty there. I'm sure they did. <laughs> I'm thirsty just hearing about it. Yeah. I wish I had a drink. Something cool and refreshing. Right? Well, I had talked about Kool-Aid. Which and we love. Which we love growing up. Yes. Lemonade, which we love. Today, I'm going to briefly talk about one of my very favorites, Chick-fil-A's Frosted Lemonade. Yum! Now, I'm just going to briefly talk about the Frosted Lemonade and then give some facts about Chick-fil-A, which is a very interesting restaurant. The Chick-fil-A Frosted Lemonade, I got a copycat recipe because, of course, you know... If you don't have a Chick-fil-A in your local town and you have to go to the next town, why not just make it at home? I haven't tried this. We're going to have to try it. But it is one cup of fresh squeezed lemon juice from, they suggest from Sunkist brand lemons because that's what Chick-fil-A uses. A half cup sugar, two and a half cups of water, and Edie's slow churn vanilla ice cream. So... Boom, four ingredients, and you're there. So, yeah. So, you add the lemon juice and sugar. You stir until the sugar's dissolved. You add the water and refrigerate, chilling at least one hour. Then you add a cup of chilled lemonade and two cups of ice cream to the blender, and boom, you have deliciousness. I can't wait to try it. I'm going to do that. And apparently, I don't know how, it doesn't say how many cups that that pitcher of lemonade will make. One of the things I liked is that this particular copycat recipe suggested Edie's slow churn vanilla ice cream, because I happen to think Edie's ice cream is one of the best ice creams out there. And it is an ice cream that Disney has. 
has in their parks. That's so right. Disney approved. Exactly. <laughs> yum and yum. So Chick-fil-A has some interesting facts and history, or I should say history and facts. And I'm going to go through some that I found on entrepreneur.com. And I'm just going to go through, they have like 25 facts. I'm just going to go through them. You guys can feel free to stop me if anything particularly grabs you. Before Chick-fil-A, there was the Dwarf House. What? (laughs) I know. I thought that was so funny. Chick-fil-A didn't get its catchy name right off the bat. Before Chick-fil-A, there was the Dwarf House, which founder S. Truett Cathy opened in 1946 in Hapeville, Georgia. Ironically, the Dwarf House's menu focused on hamburgers and steaks, and there are still 12 Dwarf House restaurants across the U.S. What? Isn't that funny? It was just like this small little restaurant. What was the irony? Because Chick-fil-A is all about chicken. Oh, and it had a lot of meat. And the dwarf house focused on hamburgers and steaks. (laughs) Beef. That's so funny. Chick-fil-A was officially founded in 1967 after much success with the dwarf house. Again, what an interesting name. 67 was a fabulous year. Apparently it was. Mm-hmm. Truett Cathy opened the first ever Chick-fil-A in 1967 in Atlanta. So they're based in Atlanta. Chick-fil-A's founder popularized the chicken sandwich. <laughs> so after the hamburger came the chicken sandwich. And Truett Cathy might be to credit for its widespread popularity. In 1964, while at the Dwarf House, Cathy was approached by a local poultry supplier who'd produced too many chicken breasts. Taking the extra supply, Truett came up with a fast food cooking method to offer his lunch patrons a new option, the chicken sandwich. Ooh, that was funny. So many just interesting little tidbits. The A in Chick-fil-A has a meaning. Beyond a play on the word filet. It also means grade A. Yeah. Yeah. All Chick-fil-A restaurants are closed on Sundays. According to the Chick-fil-A website, after Truett's experience working in restaurants that were open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, he understood the importance of time off. That's why you'll never see a Chick-fil-A restaurant open on Sundays. As the website explains, Truett set aside one day of the week for himself and his employees, and this is in quotes, to rest and worship if they choose. The first, and I didn't know this, the first 100 customers at a new Chick-fil-A restaurant get free Chick-fil-A for a year. Yeah, what? I, I had heard that before. <gasps> yeah. Dubbed the first 100 campout, Chick-fil-A encourages fans to camp out in front of its new locations the day before they open and promises to reward the first 100 customers free Chick-fil-A for a year. Only three states don't have a Chick-fil-A restaurant. Chick-fil-A has made its way into nearly every U.S. state and Washington, D.C. The exceptions are Alaska, Hawaii, and Vermont. And this was in a May 2019 article. Oh, okay. so this was very a, recent. Right. I wondered about that. I thought, well, if this was an earlier article, it could be that they exist now. But this was from 2019. It has one Hawaiian-themed restaurant. Now, notice in the thing before, there is no Chick-fil-A in Hawaii. But it does have one Hawaiian-themed restaurant. For Tropical Twist, one of Chick-fil-A's largest restaurants is Hawaiian-inspired, called Truett's Luau, and located in Fayetteville, Georgia. The 8,000-square-foot dine-in restaurant offers an array of seafood, pork, and chicken options. Opening a Chick-fil-A franchise is cheap. If you're interested in becoming a fast food franchisee, but worried about what it might cost you, check out Chick-fil-A. There are little financial prerequisites needed to apply for Chick-fil-A franchise, and opening a restaurant only costs $10,000. Not only that, but Chick-fil-A pays for all startup costs, including real estate, construction, and restaurant equipment. Wow. 
Isn't that crazy? But the next point, it's extremely competitive to become a Chick-fil-A franchisee. While opening a Chick-fil-A franchise might be cheap, the competition is high. The chain gets more than 20,000 franchisee applications a year and chooses only 75 to 80. Wow. According to Business Insider, that means you have less than a 1% chance of becoming a Chick-fil-A franchisee. It's the largest buyer of sun-kissed lemons in the world. In 2014 alone, Chick-fil-A served 121 million cups of lemonade, not frosted lemonade, just lemonade, using 250 million lemons, making it the largest purchaser of Sunkist lemons in the entire world. It's purchased more lemons from Sunkist than the entire country of Japan. Oh my gosh. It's the largest buyer of peanut oil in the country. It's not only breaking records when it comes to lemons, but peanut oil too. The ingredient behind Chick-fil-A's crispy chicken taste turns out to be peanut oil. And it's the largest domestic buyer of it. Chick-fil-A's culinary senior manager once explained in a press release... I don't know what you'd call it, serendipitous or magical, but the peanut oil makes our chicken sandwich nearly impossible to replicate. Oh, wow. So it's interesting with the peanut oil. So I imagine people with peanut allergies can't Can't do it. Chick-fil-A, but it's still so popular. Right. And I hope Dunkin' Donuts listening to this and they bring back peanut butter filled donuts (laughs) and peanut butter ice donuts because... I love them, and they don't seem to be around anymore, Dunkin' Donut. (laughs) All right, back to Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A employees are extremely polite. Please and thank you are common words you'll hear around Chick-fil-A restaurants, according to a 2016 annual drive-thru report by QSR Magazine. Chick-fil-A was voted the most polite chain restaurant. Its grilled nuggets took seven years and $50 million to create. So this is its grilled nuggets. To get the recipe just right, it took Chick-fil-A lots of time and money to craft its grilled nuggets. In fact, it took a whopping seven years and $50 million. Much of that was spent by Chick-fil-A scientists creating a special grill just for the nuggets. What is, I've been doing different research. This is a fascinating company. Yeah, and they, did, they couldn't find any grill they liked, so they had to create their own. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. It's waffle fries are the most ordered menu item. I totally, yeah. Sometimes I just order the fries. Yep. Well, you and a lot of other people. (laughs) While you might expect the chicken sandwich to be the most popular, it turns out the most ordered menu item doesn't even have chicken in it. It's the waffle fries. The company will never go public. Before Truett Cathy passed away in 2014, he made his children sign a contract agreeing that Chick-fil-A will always remain a private company. However, he did agree that they could sell if they wished. Hmm. I don't know what came of that. I didn't have time to research that. Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich recipe is locked up. To make sure no one ever gets hold of Chick-fil-A's secret chicken sandwich recipe, the company has locked it up in a vault at its headquarters in Atlanta. Chick-fil-A sauce is just a medley of other sauces. A medley? A medley. Chick-fil-A's famous sauce is no secret. In fact, in a tweet, the company revealed its simple formula. A blend of honey mustard, barbecue, and ranch. They, However they blended those, they blended them well, because yum. The restaurants make their pickles on site. Every Chick-fil-A restaurant is responsible for making its own pickles, a process that takes three days and involves cutting up cucumbers and soaking them in brine for three days. Chick-fil-A helps its employees go to college. Truett Cathy was always a big believer in higher education. Since 1973, Chick-fil-A has given more than $35 million 
and college scholarship to its employees. It has a secret menu. Like a number of other fast food chains, Chick-fil-A offers its own secret menu. Some of the items on this hidden list include a double-decker sandwich, cheese fries, a chicken quesadilla, lettuce-wrapped sandwiches, and a root beer float. It makes more money per restaurant than any other fast food chain. Chick-fil-A's popularity is sky high. According to its data from QSR Magazine in 2017 alone, its average sales per restaurant was about $4 million, compared to its competitor, McDonald's, whose average was $2.6 million. So that's quite a difference. It's expected to become the third largest fast food chain by 2020. Franchisees can only operate one location. One reason why it's so cheap to start a Chick-fil-A restaurant, it only costs $10,000 as stated before, is because the private restaurant chain is very specific about who can run one of the sandwich shops. It's very difficult to become a Chick-fil-A franchisee or operator, and if you do, the company expects you to devote your time and effort to that store. You can only run one Chick-fil-A store at a time. That's interesting, too, because they have very specific requirements also for working in the community. So they have to be Chick-fil-A, the Chick-fil-A restaurants have to be community-minded. So there have to be a certain number of donations that go out to the local community. There are a lot of expectations of these people who get these restaurants. It's very interesting. So that was yummy fun, Miss, to find out more about that. Yes, definitely. Thank you. And, of course, the Frosted Lemonade is a treat that is sublime. Well, thank you for sharing, Beth. As always, we end our podcast with our future festivities, this time for the week of July 15th. So July 15th is Be a Dork Day. Oh. July 16th is World Snake Day. That reminds me of Thor. Thor and Loki. Because in one of the movies, he said, Loki knew that I loved snakes. So he turned himself into a snake, and I picked him up to admire him. And he turned back into Loki and, and... (laughs) <laughs> said something like, ha, and stabbed me. We were boys. <laughs> or something like that. We were eight. It was so funny. Anyway, snakes always remind me of Thor. <laughs> so, shout out to Chris Hemsworth. Uh, July 17th is National Hot Dog Day. July 18th raises up the class level by having National Caviar Day. So, hot dogs one day, caviar the next. July 19th is Stick Out Your Tongue Day. Which I just did about caviar. <laughs> <laughs> should have waited. <laughs> I forgot to say that July 17th was the uh, anniversary of Disneyland opening as well on National Hot Dog Day. July 20th is Moon Day. It's the 50th our anniversary day? of the moon landing. Oh, okay. <laughs> also, it could be our day since we're holiday moons. That's right. And July 21st is National Ice Cream Day. Oh, yum. I like that day. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Holiday underscore Moons. On Instagram, we are at Holiday Moons. On Facebook, you can look at our page or join our group by searching for Holiday Moons. And you can contact us at any time by reaching out to us at HolidayMoons at gmail.com. So for Randy, Sydney, and Beth, Happy Happy Summer! Summer!